Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. Today, I'm joined by Mark Owen Jones. Mark is an assistant professor in Middle East studies at Hamad bin Khalifa University in Doha. Uh, Mark's got a, an extensive uh, experience of working on, on a range of issues pertaining to Middle East studies and sectarianism, and he's been right at the cutting edge of some of the really fascinating work pertaining to, to social media and bots and and the use of social media for, I guess, geopolitical ends. So I think there's a lot for us to talk about on today's show. So Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Simon. It's great to be here. Um, I think it's a really exciting project you've got at Lancaster, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to contribute something useful. I'm sure you will. There's, there's a great deal for us to talk about, from your from your childhood all the way through to these uh, yes. <laughs> these bots that you're that you're working so hard on. So, could you tell us a little bit, Mark, about how you got uh, involved and interested in in Middle Eastern politics? I guess it, it's quite a personal story for you. Yeah, I mean, it really is. Uh, I so I was born in London. But when I was six months old, my family and I, we moved to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and this was about 1985, 86. Uh, so, and then we lived there for three years. And uh, after that, we moved to Bahrain, and I went to school in Bahrain. Um, I spent most of my primary and secondary education there. Right. Um, until going to boarding school in the UK, and then I went to university and studied journalism. And uh, I kind of knew... When I was about 19, I wanted to do a PhD. I wasn't sure in what, uh, but I also knew that I really wanted to study Arabic right. for some reason, and I'm not entirely sure why. <laughs> we weren't allowed to study Arabic in Bahrain. Okay. I partly blame, I partly blame imperialism. Um, I have personal stories of that. I feel like the the one of the imperial administrators in Bahrain, Charles Charles Belgrave, didn't didn't like the idea that um, there should be fraternization. He was very aggrieved that his son was taking an interest in going to a lot of the Arab nationalist clubs. So right. I sometimes think there's this, well, I sometimes joke that there's probably a personalistic element to the fact <laughs> I wasn't yeah. allowed to study Arabic that stems from uh, imperialism. But that's a, that's a different <laughs> story. Either way, um, I, it made me want to study Arabic. So uh, I decided after my bachelor's that the, the thing I really wanted to do in, in, in life at that point was go and study study Arabic um, in somewhere in the Middle East. I ended up getting a job in, I, I did a TEFL qualification at Salta, and I ended up getting a job in, of all places, Sudan and Khartoum. Right. Wow. Uh, I know, it was bizarre. I applied for the jobs, one with which was in Indonesia, one of which is in, in, in Sudan, and I got sure. offered the, the job in Sudan. Amazing. And I decided to go there, and that was 2007. So I, I knew at this point that I was trying to work towards a career in um, academia, but probably Middle East studies. Yeah. And um, whilst I was in Sudan, actually, teaching myself Arabic and teaching English, you know, I, I, I was applying for master's programs and as if by kind of, I don't know, divine intervention, and I say that being not at all religious, <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a, master's, a master's was um, created very recently in the UK at that time. It was the uh, Centre for the Advanced Study of the Arab World create, had funding to to fund masters in the study of both Arabic and, and, and either politics, literature, or, or, or Islamic studies. So in this master's program, which uh, there was, the first year was intensive Arabic study at Edinburgh University and a uh, university in the Middle East. Um, so I went there and did intensive Arabic and in Edinburgh, but also in Damascus. Right. And so I was in Damascus before the war in about 2009, I think, summer of 2009. 
Um, so I started studying Arabic there intensively, and in the second year I went to Durham uh, to, to finish the master's, where I focused on politics and, and, and history, and obviously I was exposed to, to, to theories of sectarianism to some degree then, um, mostly when I was you know, studying the Iraq invasion, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and then the PhD kind of, I, I knew I wanted to do a PhD, so I applied to do a PhD. And I was interested in a PhD on social media. That was my main thrust. Social media was something that was up and coming at the time. Right. Um, so I wrote a PhD about social media use in Bahrain. You know, I wanted to study a country that I was familiar with, that I had access to. Um, so it, to me, it was a logical kind of idea. But what was strange is that the, the, year, the, the month I started my PhD was also the month the Arab, or it was the year the Arab uprisings hit Bahrain. So I started my PhD in January 2011. Right. Obviously, February the 14th in Bahrain yeah, is when we had the, um, the, the big protests in, in, in Bahrain, uh, the pro-democracy protests, as it were. And I was studying social media at a time when um, scholars of the region, but also scholars in the field of, of media, were talking about the democracy democratizing potential and the the, the uh, emancipatory potential of digital technologies you know yeah. if you if you read the news about the uprisings in Egypt you'd see photos used of protesters holding up signs saying Facebook and Twitter and I think there was a tendency at the time to fetishize social media and its role in these uprisings um, so I became very interested in that and I studying Bahrain and, and the rise of sectarianism particularly and the use of social media as a tool for disseminating sectarian hate speech and propaganda early on in 2011 really kind of piqued my interest both in the dystopian potential of technology but yeah. also um, the types of discourses that were being mobilized using technology and one of these happened to be sectarianism. So my interest to, to answer your question, I mean I, I know it's a, a brief biography as you asked for, <laughs> But also it explains a little why I was interested in sectarianism, simply because it became a phenomenon that I noticed simply because the uprising coincided with my PhD. And I started to relate my own personal experiences of growing up in Bahrain with this new knowledge, this new political knowledge that I was gaining from studying Bahrain. I started to wonder why I had never really met you know, many of the Bahana community in Bahrain, why I hadn't right, gone to yeah. school with many of the indigenous communities. Um, and, and some things were put in perspective. I start to remember conversations I'd had with, with not to be Friedman-esque about this, but um, to, like uh, once I had a, a Bahana taxi driver who I didn't know at the time was Bahana, but right. at the time he was telling me about all his grievances. And I was a young guy, this was before my PhD, and I, I identified with them because I've always been sort of left in my beliefs um, I, I, you know, I sort of attribute that to having a communist grandfather. So I really understood and empathized with the kind of what seemed like the socioeconomic disenfranchisement by this Bahraini guy, as I saw him. Sure. And then I started to put the pieces together later on when I was studying that it wasn't just because there was poor Bahrainis, but there was poor Bahrainis. And often they were poor because of specific institutionalized uh, discrimination, um, much, some of which, not all of which, is based on sectarianism. So it really resonated in a personal capacity to me because Bahrain to me was home. It's where I had my early childhood memories, my first kiss or whatever you want to call it. And also because, yeah. you know, I had an academic interest. So those two things combined to make me incredibly passionate about social justice and, and related issues in Bahrain. Sure. So going back to your, your childhood in Bahrain then, what, mm. what, what do you recall? Do you have any particular memories that resonate if you're looking back on things, having, having done all of this education, having looked at Bahrain intellectually? Is there anything that, that resonates from your, your time there? 
Yeah, lots of things. I mean, I have some. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of those, a couple of anecdotes, I suppose, uh, that really kind of stuck with me, and that I remembered even, even um, that I remembered as being unusual or interesting, even despite um, my more recent acquisition of knowledge about the politics and history of the place. So one of the most enduring memories I had was as a, I think I was about nine years old at the time, right, and. I attended international schools, sure. both primary and secondary. And although we weren't allowed to study Arabic, the schools were, were you know, entirely mixed. It was Bahrainis, it was English people, Australians, Egyptians. Yeah. It was people from everywhere. And one of my best friends was a Bahraini guy. And uh, we used to, like people, everyone at the time, we used to go to people's houses and, and have lunch at their houses or, or just hang out. And I remember one time I was hanging out at his house in Rafah, and Rafah is generally known as an area that's pro-government, and although I don't like using the sectarian terms, it's kind of seen as a Sunni majority area. Sure, yeah. And I didn't know this at the time, obviously. But um, I was I went to his house, and as was common at the time, we used to make a lot of prank calls. This was the 90s, I suppose. Um, prank calls were, were popular. <laughs> uh, if, if you don't know what prank calls are, Google it, you know. <laughs> uh, it's the first time they've been mentioned on the SEPAD pod, so thank you for well, that. Well, no worries about that. <laughs> they were ruined by caller ID, that's that's what I say. So what was actually quite common in those days is that you'd go to um, cold stores, and, and for those who don't know, cold stores are just mini supermarkets that sell all the basics. And often the cold stores would have um, uh, pay phones. So what kids used to do, teenagers, we'd go to these cold stores, which were more anonymous, and then we'd usually prank call our friends. You know, we'd put a few hundred fills in yeah. and then phone our friends and then say ludicrous things. Um, so we were doing this, uh, as we did many times. And then suddenly my friend, um, whose name I won't mention, not that it matters, we were kids, but I'd, I'd rather <laughs> yeah. not. Sure. Um, he sort of said, oh, we have to go. And I and I, I didn't notice anything change. I was like, why do we have to go? And he was like, oh, the, there's there's some villagers coming. I was like, villagers. Uh, in my head, I was like, I didn't know there were villagers in Bahrain. It all seemed to be one yeah. kind of urban landmass. And he's like, no, the villagers coming. They're bad kids. And I and I looked out and I could see these kids on bikes. Um, you know, these bikes that had that kind of a large aerial with a flag on. Just yeah. You know, they looked about the same age as us. Sure. They were sort of minding their own business. But he was he was very adamant that we should go. And I was like, so. Okay, we'll go. So we started walking back towards the house, and I was like, who are these villagers? He was like, oh, they're just bad kids. And I was like, why are they bad? You know, being a child, I was naturally inquisitive. Yeah. He says, oh, they just are, you know, they're, they're bad. And I thought that was a very strange conversation. A few days later, uh, I was also with my, the same friend, and we were having a discussion about names. Um, and it was it was. Rough. We'd been playing with uh, fireworks, again, another popular pastime, firing <laughs> uh, yeah. little fireworks at these tubes, uh, mostly construct, construction sites. Um, and and then he, uh, we were talking about one of our friends uh, who, who who was a Bahraini guy. And then my friend said, oh, he's from a good family. And then, again, being a curious nine-year-old, I was like, what do you mean a good family? He's like, oh, you know, they're a good family. They have a good name. I was like, what's a good name? Yeah. And and he, he said, oh, you know, um, like, and then he started listing a couple of the names. So it was like Al Khalifa, uh, you know, that's a good name. I was like, well, Al Jalahma, that's a good name. I was like, what makes these names good? And he's like, oh, I don't know. Because <laughs> he was also a nine-year-old boy. Yeah. So obviously he was being introduced to these kind of notions, again, not with, with, with the explanation that you might expect in a cerebral way, but the kind of um, exposure you might expect in a, a place where, 
certain norms are socialized uh, without explanation. Um, and so I was, being again, I was a kid, so I started listing all the surnames of our friends to see if they were from good families or not, or if they were good names or what. And then, um, I, I obviously, not knowing that this system was a parochial kind of issue, I said, what about Jones, which is my surname? Yeah. Is Jones a good name? And he just looked kind of perplexed and was like, well, I don't know, actually. I'll have to, I'll have to get back to you on that. <laughs> um, and it, to me, that was fascinating because, one, it showed my naivety and innocence as a kid, but it also showed a somewhat sinister kind of socialization of, of existing hierarchies within Bahrain yeah. that I later would find out would, would, would obviously, the term villager is, is a derog, derogatory term used, often used to refer to Bahanas, mm-hmm. not just Bahanas, Shia Bahana, but also poor people who live in villages, whereas the name thing is has also been instrumentalized. So, you know, what we saw, for example, in the 2011 uprising is that, you know, people would know, the security guards would know at a checkpoint where you were from just by your family name, your surname. So if you had a Shia-sounding name or you had a name that was named after like a Bahraini village, you know, that could be used to discriminate against you. So what I reflected on at this time was that these experiences I was having, were, I was getting a window into the socialization of these kind of prejudices. And these continued through high school to a large extent. So um, I remember when I, I went briefly to boarding school when I was 11 and I didn't like it. So I came back and I went to a secondary school in Bahrain. And um, I, uh, what was very common in the time and I later learned that this was common in other Middle East and, and particularly Gulf countries, was the notion of gangs. Right. For some reason, uh, rap was popular, people like Ice Cube. And the more affluent Bahrainis at the time, um, there was a kind of culture of having their drivers who drove big pickup trucks, or not pickup trucks rather, but like four by fours, GMCs. Sure. Yeah. And uh, their drivers would drive you know, these teenagers around and the teenagers would be blasting out Ice Cube and... and, and, and you know, they were often referred to as gangs, like there'd be gangs of these kind of affluent kids yeah. who drive around in these these trucks. But what became common was that it became this weekly ritual in term time to have fights, right? right. So, and again, looking back, it's so funny because the fights would always be at, uh, they would always be at what was the latest shopping center at the time. So when I first moved back to Bahrain, there was a ghosty shopping complex. So if someone said to you at school, come go see, come to go see, yeah. that would mean meet there on a Wednesday evening, which was, you know, the, basically the night before the weekend sure. uh, at 6 p.m. And, and, and you'd expect either a fight or some sort of intimidating thing to happen. Um, so, you know, the usual reasons that you'd get called to go for a fight, uh, honestly, were very various. You know, I think one of the one of the common ones I remember, because, again, we were teenagers, was that if, if, if a, uh, I don't know, if like um, if, if you like insulted or offended a woman, or even if you hadn't, but you could be perceived to have offended like one, a girl at school or something. Yeah. Whether you, or, or you were flirting with them or something, and someone didn't like that, then you'd be called to one of these fights. So I I remember when when I'd I'd come back from school and I, I was my first day and you know I think I was trying to make an impression. I was definitely a bit cocky, but um, very shortly after that. I got the invitation to come to go see. Okay. Right. Uh, and what was very strange about it is it was delivered by this uh, South African guy who was attached to one of these gangs that had an Al Khalifa in and some other dudes. And uh, and then, you know, my my friend who I mentioned before, who I uh, made prank phone calls with, him, was also actually in this gang. Right. And then he phoned me that evening to kind of like issue the the invitation, as it were, to go see. And uh, I, I sort of. 
I was like, mate, we're, we're, we're friends, you know, why, why you, you know, ask, why do you want to like, fight, fight with me? It doesn't make any sense. And then he sort of, and he's like, well, that's just, that's just what it is. And then he put the phone down. And then an hour later or so, he phoned back. And then he's like, oh, I spoke to the head of the gang, who was an Al Khalifa, actually. Right. Um, like a low-level Al Khalifa, yeah, I guess. Yeah. So. Um, and he said, you know, like, oh, we spoke to him and I told him that you were a good guy and stuff. And, and, and so there's no fight. And instead of going for a fight, then I was invited into this gang. Um, and whilst most of this stuff was relatively harmless, it just involved, like, driving around, listening to music, getting juice. Some, some of the things, again, were very bizarre, like, once or twice we we were we drive through villages, blasting out like music, like rap music, right? Right. Uh, and and it seemed like the the intent was 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 some sort of in retrospect like intimidation. Like why would you just drive through a village like yeah. uh, like this, uh, blasting out this kind of music? And again, it was really interesting because it reminded me of this kind of uncritic this un this just socialization of these kind of norms that weren't. I mean, we were young kids; we didn't necessarily know any better or what, what this was. So sure, um, yeah. So I thought that was intriguing. I, I didn't, it, this wasn't for me anyway. It wasn't my kind of thing. So I was in that gang for like two or three weeks, and I, I remained friends with with everyone because you know, they were nice guys. But I just thought it was very interesting that so many of these kind of seemingly westernized rituals, in this case, uh, in in other cases, other things, they had these uh, sinister connotations or at least these sinister angles to it. So when I started doing my PhD, I became very aware that a lot of these little rituals. Were, were had these very kind of um, settler-colonial, sectarian kind of uh, undertones, yeah. uh, which was extremely bizarre. Um, and, you know, things that I, I were very important for me in, in terms of me coming to terms with actually the, 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 the real or critical history of Bahrain, which is often so, so neglected, you know. Yeah, um, it, it's fascinating to hear about this this socialization and the way in which those those structures, the colonial, imperial, economic, social, uh, take take your pick, have all been sort of embedded within within childhood socialization. It's it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, I must ask Mark very quickly: Did you ever find out if Jones was a good name? <laughs> well, you know. Um... I didn't, unfortunately. Right, but I okay. have a friend who calls me Ibn Yahya, which is the Arabic <laughs> right. son of John, which, um, yeah. you know, I, I, I'd ask if Ibn Yahya was a good name, but still, I'm, I'm waiting for an answer on that. And and the second question is, what was the crime that you committed to be invited to the shopping mall for the fight? Uh, honestly, uh, I was 15. I think I called a girl that I probably had a crush on flat-chested. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe I did deserve it. The crime of a 15-year-old boy, yes. Moving swiftly on. Um, (laughs) It's really interesting to hear you sort of reflecting on on the personal aspect, but also the intellectual as well. So how how do you find all of this sort of this colonial imperial history manifesting in in today's Bahrain? And, And the Bahrain that 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 I guess you would have been looking at back in 2011, 2012? Mm. I think, I mean, my, my PhD eventually turned out to be on the history of political oppression in Bahrain. And obviously it deals a lot with imperial overrule. I will say at the outset, though, I think there's, there's, two, there's two overriding ideologies here, if we were to simplify it. Yeah. There's the ideology of, or the traditional kind of orientalist ideology that, you know, um, the, the presence of the British or Pax Britannica in the region, you know, it created some sort of peace uh, and stability, etc. And then there's the the more um, post-colonial uh, critique 
which is that you know it was often the the imperial powers that created all these social divisions uh, that didn't exist before. Uh, I think there's truth in both of those arguments, and I think uh, taken individually, both of those arguments are merely ideological. I think the reality is 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 it's much closer to being in between. Sure. I think the I think any any power structure, the, the, the British role in Bahrain is 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 not ambivalent. It was certainly characterized by self-interest. Um, the India office wanted to uh, protect its trade routes in, in, in the Gulf, but it also was concerned with um, maintaining its hegemony in the region. And in order to do that, they uh, relied on the ruling family, the Al-Khalifa in Bahrain, um, who were uh, a settler colonial force. They were an invading force who, who, who had kicked out uh, the Iranians at the time. And or the Persians, I suppose, at the time, and, and then taken power. And at the same time, they had created a very oppressive system in which they subjugated the indigenous Bahana population, who, who most of whom are Shia, to a system of uh, a feudal system. So the system in Bahrain at the time of British encroachment was no was it was not like a, an ideal fantasy world where everyone lived in harmony. Yeah. Uh, quite the contrary, it was an exploitative system that the British capitalized on, because. And, you know, the, the, the British created a system of mutual dependency. They knew that the Al-Khalifa were a minority, and they knew that if the Al-Khalifa continued to oppress the indigenous population and the British weren't there to protect the ruling family, the Al-Khalifa would fall. Sure. So what the, the British knew is that they, if the Al-Khalifa were dependent on the British for protection, then the British had leverage over the Al-Khalifa, and then they could e- extract a lot of concessions, whether it was uh, certain trade routes or... Um, the ability to monopolize trade in favor of, of the East India Company and, and later Britain. Yeah. So the British were very shrewd in this. They didn't necessarily set out to create social divisions, but they did set out to create a system of governance that was not representative of the people of Bahrain. Um, but that's, you know, that was a system that benefited the ruling family and the British to a certain extent. But then again, this, you know, I don't want to undermine the agency of local actors and people. There were people on the ground who, who did genuinely wish to seek redress and social justice. Um, but to, to argue, for example, that imperialism created these social divides is is really simplistic, and I would say entirely ideological. And obviously, I'm happy to give more details about the specific historical aspects if you if you want me to. Well, given that we're quickly running out of time, and I have so many things that I want to talk to you about, Mark, perhaps sure. um, we can point people in the direction of of, of your, your work. You've got some articles that, that look at aspects of this, and I hope mm. that we will see your, um, your PhD thesis as a book at some point in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, I have, um, it's under contract. Uh, Excellent. So I've got a contract with Cambridge University Press, so hopefully it'll be coming out later this year or early next year. Um, so that will offer far more detail on this. But if people are interested, I've got a paper on reevaluating the the role of the Iranian Revolution in internal politics in Bahrain and, and one on sectarianism and de-democratization that people would be welcome to read. Amazing. I'll tweet out links to these things uh, after the podcast. Uh, that, oh, thanks, it's man. really fascinating. I, I wonder, just quickly before we move on, what role do, do sectarian identities have within this this sort of history of political repression? And and mm. I use the term sectarian identities not in a politicized way, purely denoting mm. the, the existence of different sectarian identities? Um, yeah, it's, it's a good question and it's a difficult one. I, I, think, yeah. I think certainly for the Shia community in Bahrain, the, the discourses of oppression that are very 
pertinent or very kind of um, central to a lot of Shia rituals have helped in terms of the mobilization of grievances. So I think, you know, if you're a subjugated minority and you have this history where you believe you've been subjugated or that certain people you're idolized are subjugated, it's, a, it's, it's always been a, an important rallying point in Bahrain. But I do think there was a process whereby institutionalization of sectarian differences, such as the, the failure to recruit the Shia into the police by the British and the ruling family, made religion a more pertinent issue. So I think people began to see sectarian identity as a form of allocating state resources. But I would certainly say that it, it wasn't so central. Um, I don't think it's been so central. It's just so that the, the kind of um, the divide between the rule and the, the ruled and the rulers in Bahrain has it's easily it more easily falls on on you know this kind of sectarian typology. Sure. But I would certainly say for the for, it's been an important source of mobilization. But that's not because People are mobilizing to create, um, for example, a Shia state in Bahrain, but it's it's a way of galvanizing support in its ritualistic sense. Amazing. I, I really want to talk to you more about this, but Mark, we have to push on. Um, sure. I, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about bots and yes. Twitter, because I think yes. that, I mean, Leaving the the historical stuff aside, you've done some absolutely fantastic work on on more contemporary protest resistance and mobilization, sort of stemming from from social media, and it's absolutely fascinating. But I wonder for for those who haven't really come across your work yet, could you set out what it is that you're trying to do in this project, please? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, for those who are maybe less familiar. A bot is a simple, a relatively simple program that can automate content. So uh, basically you can make it look like you've got a Twitter account when in fact it's just a bit of software tweeting out and it has a human picture and a human banner picture. Um, so that's essentially what a bot is. What I'm trying to do with this project is trying to determine how much information in the digital sphere in particular is produced by these automated accounts. The on the premise that, um, uh, you know, if you, if you were to, for example, have a lively public sphere where the internet can be used as a space where people debate logically and rationally, that you have to have, there's an assumption there that the people who are speaking and communicating in that space are real people. Yeah. So I'm very interested in the fact that so many of these uh, people who appear to be people are not real. And, and and what these, what I found out that this software do is, is several things. They promote the discourses of those in power. They prevent the discourses of those who are critical of those in power from, from be, becoming mainstream. Uh, and more crucially, they sort of manipulate uh, salience of specific issues and topics being discussed on social media. And, and I'm mainly talking about Twitter. So sure. the role that these um, programs play in manipulating the public sphere is huge. And that's really why I'm interested in them, because this comes to the fundamental point about the debate about whether the internet uh, and social media is actually a useful tool for democratic engagement. And not just democratic. We don't have to be like normative democratic studies about this. This is literally about whose voice is being privileged. We can strip away all the, the discourse about democracy and public sphere and just have a debate about whose voice is being privileged sure. and what entities are having their voice privilege and, 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 and how is this, this new kind of approach to propaganda and information control a, a synthesis or an assemblage of both authoritarian actors but also Western companies um, who are gaining far more power 
in, in, in transnational oppression than just states are. So what are some of the headline findings then that from this? You've been looking into it and and you've been looking into the the sort of the question about how much of this debate is is based on on real interactions of of people interacting with people? What are some of the findings? Well, I mean, it's hard to generalize, but I can I can give some interesting sure. figures. So, when I started looking at bots in 2016, at times over 50% of the tweets on the Saudi hashtag. So, if you want to talk about Saudi using hashtag um, and tweeted about it, over 50% of those tweets would be produced by bots, uh, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of tweets per day producing Saudi propaganda. We've seen these bots, these uh, pro-Saudi bots, um, literally uh, manipulating the Twitter timeline of the American president, Donald Trump. So when Donald Trump tweeted a threat about Iran, I think it was uh, a year or two ago, I can't remember the exact date, um, basically what happened, his tweet was then retweeted by thousands of bots. Uh, And then we had a Twitter storm in Saudi where people... um, who were claiming to be Saudis, were tweeting in support of Donald Trump's aggressive stance towards Iran. Uh, When I analyzed that hashtag, it turns out the majority of those tweets from Saudis, quote-unquote, were actually produced by bots. Um, During the Gulf crisis, we we saw that the 13 demands made by the blockading countries, Qatar, Bahrain, UAE, and Egypt, were being promoted to a huge extent by bots. They were essentially dominating the discourse in Arabic about the crisis. The majority of content mentioned in Qatar, just the word, was being produced by bots, propaganda bots. So that was was really significant. Um, An interesting fact about that case as well, the the presence of bots also gave us some indication that the... the, the, um, the, sanction, the, the, the blockade of Qatar was pre-orchestrated, which we know more clearly now. But at the time, at the outbreak of the crisis, I found a bot network that had been created to tweet against Qatar and about the royal family. It had been created a month before the the the, um, the the kind of crisis blew up, a month sure. before the Emir's comments on social media. So it even gives us some sort of indication. They can give us some sort of indication about pre-existing plans to, 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 to engage in sort of... Uh, uh, political conflict, I suppose. Yeah. Um, there's some examples, and I can give more. Well, yeah. that's that's really interesting. I wonder, can you say a little bit about where the bots are are made? Who's who's creating them? Who's channeling them and sort of providing them with their ideological message, if you will? Right. I'm going to break from tradition and say it's not the Russians. <laughs> but uh, the shorter answer is we 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 don't truly know. Uh, the longer answer is that. It's most likely state-sponsored, but devolved to various technical entrepreneurs. So what I would say about bot networks and what we know about bot networks is that, and and certainly what we know about Saudi Arabia is that uh, a lot of this kind of uh, information manipulation is the work of um, agreements maybe between certain state entities. In this case of Saudi, it could be Saud al-Qatani, contacting um, networks of hackers or networks and friends who are hackers who know those hackers, uh, and then procuring services uh, that these people offer. So what we can say is that it's almost certainly uh, comes from high up, but the people actually executing these processes are not always in-house. Some of it will be in-house, certainly, but most of it will be devolved to to these technical experts. And so what we see is a kind of worrying, um, I suppose, a kind of mercenary-type behavior from these kind of computer, IT mercenaries, um, and a devolution of state, actual control 
over these processes themselves, but still a willingness by states to enrol these services because they know that they are they are useful. And are there particular um, issues that, that gain more traction than others? In the region, yeah. I mean, if you look at the activity of bots, they seem they come up when there's when there's they're needed. Um, so when the Qatar crisis happened, when the Jamal Khashoggi was killed, we see a huge increase in activity of these bots who are trying to, to drown out negative content. Yeah. Certainly in Saudi Arabia, we see lots of information praising Mohammed bin Salman being promoted on Twitter. That's another kind of thing. But one of the enduring things I've noticed by one bot network, and not all bot networks are necessarily created by the same people, one of the only ones where uh, we've managed to identify the, the person who probably programmed it is a bot network that promotes a very, very sectarian Saudi news channel called Saudi 24. So when I actually first discovered bots, it wasn't to do with Khashoggi or the Qatar crisis. It was actually because I was noticing there was so much sectarian hate speech on Twitter. But then I was also noticing that much of that hate speech was being produced by bots. Yeah. So that's another kind of phenomenal thing is that the amount of, and the volume of hate speech uh, being produced online is being manipulated and augmented by um, parties who have an interest in promoting this discourse, but not by the general public. Sure. And I guess what's really fascinating is that you then can't view this independently. To, in order to understand it, you have to locate it within broader political contexts, socioeconomic structures, geopolitical factors, and it's only then that you can get a real sort of nuanced picture of the reasons for such activity taking place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you take uh, the, 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 the prevalence of hate speech into account, for example, uh, Human Rights Watch did a report on how Saudi clerics were using hate speech against minorities. What's the context there? The context is that you have a government who is very authoritarian, the Saudi government, who, when there is political dissent, will crush it. But sure. that means if, if, if something like hate speech is happening, they are turning a blind eye to it because it's not like these are liberal governments that respect free, free speech necessarily. They're the opposite. So the context here is that, that you have a permissive government in one place, a permissive government in terms of their ability to tolerate or accept or encourage sectarian hate speech, operating on a, uh, on a allowing people using social media to disseminate this message to a much broader audience. And then at the same time, you have companies like Twitter who, who, who own the platform, unwilling to actually uh, apply um, or take action against these things. So the ecosystem of, of the internet is being manipulated by these kind of extreme actors who are doing little to police their own constituencies. And then at the same time, the, you know, the social media companies themselves are complicit. So there's all sorts of kind of different aspects to each of these phenomena that we see that involve multiple stakeholders, and which is why I say assemblages rather than like the state actors yeah. or the companies themselves, because, you know, I think it's more important to see these kind of behaviors as the result of all the kind of uh, the conflation of the different factors you mentioned, geopolitical, social, sure. commercial, all these things. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Mark, we've, mm. we've taken up so much of your time, but where can people read more about this, this project, this work on bots? Well, I mean, it's a little scattered, but uh, I have uh, a paper that's come out uh, last month, um, on particularly on the Qatar crisis, the Gulf crisis, that talks about, and it highlights my methodology, but it, it's a good explainer on how 
how these bots operate and what kind of things they do and how they are deployed in political crisis. It's on it's in the International Journal of Communication and it's about the weaponization of Twitter. Sure. And again, I will I will tweet that out so people can can look at my timeline to to see more. Mark, thank Appreciate you it. so much for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating and we're going to have to do this again to to really delve deeper into some of the issues that you've identified. Your work is yeah, absolutely, absolutely fascinating, sitting at the intersection of all these different literatures and it's wonderful. I'm really pleased we were able to get this done. Well, thank you so much for having me and um, well, it's great to be here and I look forward to speaking to you again on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, okay. Mark. Until next Thanks, time. Thanks for listening.